Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that where two or three gather in his name, he would be there in the midst of them in his gracious presence. We thank you, too, for that delight that our Lord Jesus had in visiting his disciples in the evening of the Lord's day. And we pray that as he taught them from your word, that he would come again by his Spirit, and that he would find the place in his word from which he may teach us. We pray that we may be good disciples and learners, and that as week by week and day by day, and then month by month and year by year, you work upon us by the truth of your word, we may find our lives being more and more conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus, that as we live with him, as we hear him daily, we may become truly like the one with whom we live. And so we pray that you would teach us this evening to think your thoughts after you from your word, that we may live in this world as those who know God and his word and are made strong and do exploits for your glory. We wait upon you then and pray that you would speak to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior's name. Amen. Please be seated. Now we've come this evening to the end of the ninth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're reading chapter 9, verse 30, through to chapter 10, verse 4. You'll find the passage on the Pew Bible, page 946. And perhaps it would be wise for me to say at this juncture that although we're reading through into chapter 10 and verse 4, I mean to cover only verses 30 to 33 of chapter 9, just in case as the clock ticks towards the conclusion, you find yourself in something of a panic that I'm only halfway through the passage. So let's hear God's Word from Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Paul cites from Isaiah chapter 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for Israel, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness 
to everyone who believes. I wonder if when you were in high school, perhaps even earlier than that, I wonder if you ever gave your teachers nicknames or pet names. Probably it wasn't allowed in your school, and I suspect it wasn't really allowed in my school, but we did it nevertheless. I had one teacher, a mathematics teacher, uh, in whose class I rose to my final disaster as a mathematician. And uh, as it turned out in later years, I discovered she was a Christian lady. And I could keep you here for some time telling you how I discovered that somewhat to my discomfiture after I'd become a Christian. We had a nickname for her. I knew her nickname before I ever had her as a teacher. Her nickname was Maisie. Maisie. I actually thought that was her name until she became my teacher, and then I realized that uh, as she taught us, I'm just guarding her name because it's on the tip of my tongue to say it, as she taught us, every so often she would pause and she would say, and may I say that? And may I say that? And she said this so often that, of course, the fellows in the class chose this kind of mantra that she used as her nickname, may I say that, became Maisie. And, of course, most of us understand from teachers, perhaps from uh, an awareness of ourselves, that anyone who speaks any language tends to employ particular patterns of speech, sometimes quite idiosyncratic patterns of speech. You tend not to notice them, and it's only when somebody points it out that you realize you've a phrase or you've an expression that you keep using. Those who speak in public almost always have language like that. And behind our backs, we are imitated. Sometimes I have no doubt in a Scottish accent because there is, there is something just about this person that you, you recognize there is a style of doing things. And the Apostle Paul was exactly the same. There are phrases he uses in certain contexts that he keeps on using, and we become so familiar with them that we, we realize wherever he uses this phrase, something is happening in his teaching, in his discussion, in his exposition. And we've come to such a phrase tonight, right at the beginning of chapter 9 and verse 30. That little statement of Paul's in the form of a question, what shall we say then? And it marks several things, just those few words. And, and if we read through Romans, we become accustomed to what it is Paul is doing when he uses this little question, what shall we say then? For one thing, he's pausing us. He's saying, now, let's just stop a moment. Let's just gather our thoughts. And then he's saying, now, where have we reached in our discussion? And then he's saying, now, let's gather up the implications of what I've been teaching, and we'll move on so that we see exactly where this teaching is leading us. 
If you look back just a few pages, you'll see he does it with the identical language several times at the beginning of chapter 4. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather? He has been teaching us about justification by grace through faith, and then he says, now let's stop and think about this. Let's work this out in terms of the experience of Abraham. And then as we saw at the beginning of chapter 6, what shall we say then? He's been saying, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So, let's, let's get a hold of what this means. And similarly, later on, he says in chapter 7 and verse 7, when he's speaking about the law, what are we going to say? And then perhaps the most familiar place when he does this is in chapter 8 and verse 31, at the beginning of that magnificent section in Romans chapter 8, as he's expounded the gospel so richly, and he says, okay, now let's pause for a moment. Let's try and take this in and work this through. What then shall we say to these things? And he brings everything he's been saying and drives it home to these glorious conclusions at the end of chapter 8. And so, we're familiar enough with the Apostle Paul now to realize that when he says in the beginning of chapter 9, verse 30, what shall we say then that he's moving us on? He's gathering together everything he's said. He is pausing us for a moment and he's saying, now, let's stop and think about what is really happening here. And what is really happening here is, of course, that he is profoundly burdened by one particular thing. That is, that although he had said in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The fact of the matter is that it's the Greek, it's the Gentile, who has responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Israel, the Jew, of whom the apostle Paul is one, by and large, has not responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but has indeed rejected it. And his desire, his concern here, chapter 10, verse 1, is that therefore they are not saved, and he is burdened that they might be saved. He's like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem for his own kinsmen according to the flesh because they are not saved. So, this whole question of why it is that his own people have rejected the gospel while Gentiles who are strangers to the covenants have responded to the gospel is not only a, an academic problem to the Apostle Paul, a theological question for him. It's a deeply personal question to him because his own people have not responded to the gospel. And in fact, it was, uh, it was a deeply apostolic issue for him, because he had experienced this. We see this, don't we? We see this by and large in the modern world today. It's Gentiles who are being grafted into Jesus Christ and not Israel. 
but for many of us it's a relatively distant issue. For Paul, it was up close and personal. One of the best ways to to discover how, how close that came to him is to do a little study. It will only take you a few minutes really to do it. Start in Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church in Antioch, and then glance through chapters 13 to chapter 21, at which point most of the rest of the Acts of the Apostles is going to be taken up with Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, his arrest, and then him being sent to Rome. And in those nine chapters, 13 through 21, just look for what happens when Paul goes to a city to preach the gospel. If there is a synagogue there, he goes to the synagogue to preach the gospel, and whenever he does it, without fail. He is rejected and ejected, and he turns almost inevitably to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So, this was not a theoretical pain for Paul, an irritation to the tidiness of his theology. This was something the Apostle Paul had experienced everywhere he preached the gospel, that he was rejected in each synagogue in which he preached it, that he was harried and pursued by those to whom he had come, the kinsmen according to the flesh. And so, it was an excruciating issue for him How is it that when I've said at the beginning that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, that it is by and large the Gentiles who have responded to that gospel and not the Jews? And a great question for him, his question, and I think this is his question in chapter 9 and verse 6, is the question, has God's Word failed then? God who made His covenants, God who gave the privileges. Has God failed? Everything else that follows from that is Paul's response to people's response to his response. You got that? Everything that follows from that is Paul responding to quibbles and objections and hands raised at the back of the room or the back of the synagogue when he was preaching in the synagogue. His question, his only question, is the question, has God's Word failed? And his answer is, as we've seen, a resounding no. God's Word has not failed. Because right from the very beginning, the promise of God was a distinguishing, sovereign, electing promise. So that right from the very beginning, God had said to Abraham, in Isaac and not in Ishmael will your seed be called. And then you remember he'd used that monumental illustration of Jacob and Esau, and how before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, when they were in their mother's womb, when they were in the same womb of the same woman, fathered by the same man at the same time, nothing to distinguish them from one another. 
God had set his favor upon Jacob, and he had passed by Esau even before they were born. Now, that's his answer, and actually it's a perfectly satisfactory answer. It's a powerfully logical answer. God's Word has not failed because God has always been working in this discriminating way, when for His own sovereign purposes, out of His own gracious mercy, He has set His love upon some and passed by others. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Apostle Paul, who caused riots in the synagogues by his teaching, has caused riots in the Christian church by this teaching, by saying, God is God in this matter, and His Word does not fail. It never returns to Him void. It accomplishes the very thing for which He gave it. But then, of course, the objections arise, and hardly need to look at them. The first is, well, is God unjust then? Is God unjust when He sets His love upon Jacob and passes by Esau? And Paul says, not if you understand what I've been teaching you in my letter to the Romans. What He does is to show mercy. It's not a matter of justice. Don't stand there, he says, before Almighty God and say, I have a right, because by your sinfulness you forfeited all your rights. And then, of course, the question arises, doesn't it? Well, and you've probably heard this, well, I, nothing I can do about it. It would be unfair of God to blame me. And Paul stares down this objection in a fierce way, he says, who do you think you are speaking like this to God? You sinful piece of clay, you who have rejected God, you who despise God. You know, my wife is in Scotland just now, and she was telling me she'd been watching a program on British television in which uh, I think a Roman Catholic member of parliament had been interviewing various atheists. One of them had said this, a very, very famous man. You can even see him on American television programs. He said, you, excuse the language, said, you and your damn Ten Commandments. You see, there is a rational an emotional creature. No prejudice here. Oh, don't you believe it? That's the natural man, you see. Hates God. How do we know he hates God? He seems so civilized and decent. How do we know he hates God? Just mention the name of the Lord Jesus to him and say, he is the most glorious Savior in the world, and he has saved me from my sins and an eternity in hell because of his infinite love for me. And you speak about that infinitely loving Savior, and all hell breaks loose, doesn't it? He doesn't love God at all. He hates God. 
And he hates the idea that God's greatest passion is that we should worship the Lord Jesus Christ and crown Him Lord of all and live for His glory. He hates that. He doesn't love God at all. And yet he has the audacity to say, what about my rights? That's the Apostle Paul's argument that since we are all in that position by nature, that's the whole thrust of chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. He has shown us that we are all sinful and guilty, so that every mouth may be shut. But here there are mouths that are still opening. Do you know, I think I learned in a psychology class at university, this is a grotesque but interesting fact, that when Mary, Queen of Scots, was executed, her mouth kept opening and shutting for almost half an hour afterwards. And I know that's a very grotesque thought, but it's a very grotesque illustration of where we are by nature, isn't it? lost, condemned before a holy God, and our mouths keep opening and shutting and opening and shutting. We are dead in trespasses and sins, but we will talk back to God. And Paul is dealing with all that. The last vestiges of our pride, he knocks the final nails into our coffin and says, God, as He looks upon sinners, has every right to have mercy upon whom He will have mercy, and to harden those He will. And He says to such, and if you will look to Him for mercy, you will find mercy. He has promised never to cast out those who come to Him. Look to Him for mercy. I will not look to Him for mercy. Then from him, mercy you shall never have. That is the apostle's message. And the fascinating thing is, he's not making this up. If you look through Romans chapter 9 to this point, I think you will find that in the course of these verses, he cites the Scriptures no less than ten times. So he's saying this is how to understand the Scriptures. But now he says, what then are we going to say about this? Now, where does all this lead us? Where does it lead us, and how does it position us? There's something very fascinating here. One of the disadvantages of going through Romans week by week is that there's a week in between one passage and another, and so we can tend to lose the, the thrust and the flow and the power. Remember a moment ago I said, Paul's, his only question, his own only question is, has God's Word failed? And he's answered that question. The other questions come in upon him. There are people saying, stop, I want to argue with you. You're wrong. I don't want that kind of God. But if for a moment we can put parentheses round those other questions, 
I think you'll see, in a sense, at chapter 9, verse 30, is what Paul was going to say next. In a sense, chapter 9, verse 30, might have followed along on his answer to the question, has God's Word failed? It could have followed along in verse 13, because now he's doing a very interesting thing. He's saying, what is the situation here? I've answered the question, has God's Word failed? And my answer is, certainly not. So why then is it that Israel is not running into the kingdom of God? Do you notice before he finishes chapter 9, what he has begun to expound to us is, Israel is not running into the kingdom of God because Israel is running in her own direction. And you see what he's doing? Having said God's word has not failed because God is absolutely sovereign, he's now saying, but if you want to ask the question, why are Israel not trusting in Jesus Christ? The answer to that question is solidly in Israel's court. And so he says, how do we explain the fact that Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness didn't succeed? Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. He's, he doesn't mention God at all here. He's saying, if you want to answer the question, has God failed? Here's the answer. If you want to answer the question, why is it that Israel is not believing in Jesus Christ? Then the answer lies in something you need to know about Israel. Or to put it in doctrinal terms, he holds together so marvelously the sovereignty of God as he pursues his saving purposes and the responsibility of men and women for their condition in this world and for their own rejection of the gospel. And the interesting thing, I think, is that it's almost as though Paul is saying, now listen, if you had stopped interrupting me, I would have shown you this several weeks ago in our time, or three minutes ago in Romans' time. But you kept on interrupting me. You kept on arguing with me. You didn't let me finish my exposition. Hear me out to the end. Do you want to know why Israel isn't saved? It's because of Israel that Israel is not saved. And he teaches us this by a series of contrasts. The first is in verses 30 to 31. There's a contrast of pursuit, and it's fascinating. He says, the Gentiles, now, he says, Gentiles who have come into the kingdom of God, they, they weren't looking for this righteousness of which the Scriptures speak. No interest in this righteousness. Many of us in that situation, we had no interest whatsoever in God, in Christ, in the gospel, or in righteousness. Last thing from our minds, what happened? Did we pull ourselves up by our bootstrings? No, no, God broke into our lives. The gospel came to us. We, we encountered somebody who was a real Christian, and we discovered we weren't. 
or God's Word awakened us, or some providential situation. How many times do you hear this? Some providential situation, some sense of deep discontent, even by somebody who has apparently attained everything, and it turns them back to the gospel and to the Word of God and to the Lord Jesus. Gentiles, he says, who they weren't interested in the Ten Commandments, only things they were interested in was that nobody got interfering with their lives. They didn't pursue righteousness, and yet by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, they found it. But Israel, oh Israel, Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. Now, even the language is interesting, isn't it? No mention of God here. No mention of fellowship with God. No mention of finding God's salvation. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, the focus was all on law, you see, didn't succeed in reaching that law. Give you an illustration. It's not perfect. And uh, I want you to focus on half of a parable. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Two men go up to the temple. They both happen to be Jews, but for all practical purposes, the publican has become a Gentile. He's sold out to the Gentiles. But focus attention on the Pharisee. He goes in to the temple. How does he pray? He prays, Lord. Lord, he says, I thank you, and I praise you. I praise you. Actually, I praise you partly because I'm not like this man over in the corner. But I praise you because I fast twice a week, because I tithe, and I give to the poor. In other words, he's saying, I'm ticking off the law. I'm trying to keep the law. I'm pursuing the law. That's the goal of my life. And you remember at the end, the Pharisees there, the publicans beating his breast to ashamed to lift up his eyes to heaven. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I wonder what the answers were in people's minds to Jesus' question. Jesus says, now, which of these two men left the temple having found righteousness? Well, you and I know the answer, don't we? It sure wasn't the Pharisee. Everything in his prayer said, I am pursuing righteousness. But he was looking in the wrong direction for righteousness, wasn't he? And Jesus said he never found what he was looking for because he was looking for it in the wrong place. Some of you may be like me. I have almost no sense of direction. I, in a former congregation, was driving at 70 miles down the highway. Now, that was legal, I think. I'm sure it was legal. I was driving at 70 miles down the highway, and a car zipped past me on the other side of the highway. A Sunday night, I thought, where's he going? He was one of my elders. And then I thought, he's going to church. I'm heading in the wrong direction at 70 miles an hour, with great confidence, tremendous confidence. 
reflecting on how marvelous it's going to be. With great zeal, enthusiasm, self-assurance, and a great wee car. And exactly the same is true when it comes to salvation, isn't it? Heading in the wrong direction, and therefore never reaching the destination. And you see what their mistake was. He not only makes a contrast in the pursuits, but he makes a contrast in the manner of the pursuits. Look at what he says. He says, the problem was this. Verse 32, Israel did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. See, they didn't get it. They kind of, they, they turned Bible on its head. Actually, when the law was given, it was given in the context of God's saving grace, wasn't it? The commandments didn't say, if you keep all of these commandments, then I will be gracious to you. The law said, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I have redeemed you with my outstretched arm. Therefore, imitate me. But you see, their heads were down in Torah. They were focused on Torah. You see a Hasidic Jew today may even be in a public position and his head will be down in Torah. His finger will be following Torah. What's wrong? Oh, you want to sit, um, dear one. You're looking in the wrong place. You're looking at the law. Think about what Craig Wilkes was saying. You're looking at the law as though that was the way for you to be saved. And you're not seeing that the law points you to the way to be saved. The law will crush you rather than save you. Only God in His infinite grace can save you. And at the end of the day, as the law points to Jesus Christ, as the New Testament tells us, if you keep looking at the law, you'll not see to whom the law is pointing the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my colleagues said to me the other day about a conversation he'd had with a man, not a member of our congregation, but the man had come to him, and he said to the man, are you a Christian? And the man said, yes, I'm a Christian. And so my colleague said very gently, but wisely, well, what is a, what do you, what is a Christian? His answer Christian is somebody who tries to do his best, and I think I've done my best. Christian is somebody who basically gets a passing grade by comparison with others who fail. That's not a Christian at all. It's got absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with being a Christian. You can do all of these things and be a Jew, be a Muslim, be an atheist, be a Buddhist. You can be New Age and do all of these things. And many people who are these things think that is the way to be saved. That is the way to be a Christian. It's not. 
you see? Not seeing it. It's amazing. It's, it's as simple as that. Like John Newton, isn't it? Amazing grace. Remember the blind man, Romans, Romans John 9, isn't it? He, they're saying, now explain all this. And he's saying, I haven't had any theological education. I have no way of explaining this, but I tell you, once I was blind, now I see. And you remember the point Jesus makes? He says, oh, he says to his kinsmen according to the flesh, if only you realized you were blind there might be a chance you would see, but as long as you say, I see, you remain spiritually blind. That's why there was a contrast in the result. We find this, don't we, in the end of verse 32 and in verse 33. They didn't pursue righteousness by faith, but as though it were based on works, and so they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, what's the stumbling stone? Jesus is the stumbling stone. Jesus is the stumbling stone. Remember how the apostles in Acts 4, isn't it, use the 118th Psalm, the stone the builders have rejected has become the head of the cornerstone. And Peter, Peter, the fisherman from Galilee, has the courage and the audacity to say to these Jewish leaders and theologians, you builders, you builders, as they were saying, you ministers, you elders, you leaders in the church, what an audacious thing to say, you builders. You didn't even recognize God's stone when it was right in front of your eyes. And so he's saying, the scripture of Isaiah 28 has been fulfilled. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Remember chapter 1, verses 16 and 17? I have never been put to shame by the gospel. Marvelous, isn't it? And that's how it is. That's how it is. There's the legal way, and there's the grace way. And God's only way is the grace way. Paul himself had discovered that. He tells us in Philippians 3 that there was a time when he thought the legal way will work. But now he saw that it was only in Christ and in Christ alone that there could possibly be righteousness in his life. Now, isn't that, I find this absolutely fascinating that having expounded the power of the sovereign grace of God in salvation, Paul is now saying the explanation for the fact that Israel, who's had all of these privileges, does not trust in the Messiah, is to be found in the response 
of my kinsmen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the explanation lies. That's where the responsibility lies. And so he marvelously holds together two things, the sovereignty of God in the salvation of his people and the responsibility that those who are not saved bear for rejecting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you notice, and I think this is an important point for us to follow, it's not an either-or for Paul. It's a both-and. God sovereign in salvation, man utterly responsible for his own rejection of the gospel. And we need, to, we need to understand that. We need to, we need to be delivered from the kind of language that you sometimes hear that says, of course, God is largely sovereign. And so God exercises a certain percentage of sovereignty, and then we exercise a certain percentage of our own free will. That's not how the Bible looks at the relationship between God and man. Let me try and illustrate this with a a simple and perhaps foolish illustration. Imagine a man from Mars has come to the Super Bowl, and he says to somebody there, now just explain to me what goes on. And the man says, well, there are these saints He says, well, this is a church. No, no, he says, this is a football game. There are these saints and are these colts, and the saints are on this half of the field, and the colts are on that half of the field. And the game begins, and suddenly the man realizes that the saints have crossed the halfway line, and none of these flags are going up. He says, the man from ours says, there's something wrong here. The saints have got out of their half of the field into the other half of the field. Surely that's a foul. And the man says, oh, stupid, I forgot to say to you, both teams play on the field, the whole of the field, all of the time. That's how it works. And that's how God's activity and man's responsibility work. It's not so much percent God is active, so much percent I am active. It is. Now, this is the thing that it isn't possible for us to understand. It is that God is 100% active in everything that happens in the universe. And yet we are also 100% active in all we do when we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the interesting thing is, I would lay a fair amount of money if I were a betting man on this. Most of us understand that when it comes to other elements of biblical teaching. Let me give you a very simple illustration. Question, who is the author of Scripture? Answer, God. Question, who is the author of Romans? Well, as far as I can see, Paul thought he was the author of Romans. 
Because he says, he said this to us 18 months ago in Romans chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Well, was it 50% Paul and 50% God? No, God isn't related to the world in that kind of way. He is related 100% to breathing out Romans. The Apostle Paul breathed out Romans. We've discovered months ago he didn't write it himself. He breathed it out. He dictated it. It's Paul breathed, and it's God breathed, and yet it's only one letter. How? Because God is related to what Paul is doing in a godlike way. That's why you can't reduce this to the lowest common denominator. I'll give you another illustration. Most of us in this room believe God is omnipresent, don't we? We believe He's everywhere. When you say that, do you mean, just think about this room, do you mean that God is everywhere except the hundreds of bodies that litter this sanctuary at the moment are? In other words, God's omnipresence comes up here, and then it starts again here, and starts again. No, you don't mean that. That would be God, bits and pieces of present, not omnipresent. So what are we saying when we say He's omnipresent? We are saying that He is present in relationship to the entire space aspect of the space-time continuum in a wholly different way from the way in which we are related to it. He is related to this space 100%, and Sinclair Ferguson is also related to this space 100%. That's the mystery that we'll never be able to fathom. But these are the realities that the Apostle Paul wants us to hold together so that we never make the foolish mistake that his questioners have made by saying, if God comes in sovereign grace, then I have no responsibility to believe. Or if I am not saved, the fault is His when the responsibility is actually mine. And you see, it's because he understood this that Paul's heart was broken because his kinsmen, according to the flesh, had rejected the gospel. Just as the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ wept over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you to myself as a mother hen would gather her chicks, and you would not, and you would not. Well, I have two questions to close with. The first is this. As we understand the responsibility that men and women have for their response to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
do we share a little of Jesus' burden and Paul's burden for the lost? Shed a tear for them. But perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. That's altogether possible. I wonder if this, which is among the strongest teaching anywhere to be found in the Bible, I wonder if this has made you realize that, in fact, you're not a Christian, and you've no right to become a Christian, and you've no power to become a Christian. You would not. But there's something about this that, that is so powerful that it makes you cry out, Oh God, is there, is there a way you could be merciful to me? It would be the greatest thing in the world to learn that somebody had been converted through a sermon on Romans 9, wouldn't it? Where God shows Himself so sovereign and man so small and shows me I am so needy. I have no claims on him. I've forfeited all my claims, and I've rejected him, and I would not come to him, and I've seen the gospel in someone else, and I know they've come to him, and something stirs within me, even as I'm conscious of my own hopelessness and helplessness. I know I cannot just in my own strength, say, I am going to be Christ's. And I may even have tried, and it's got me nowhere. Well, here is good news. He has mercy, and He offers mercy in Jesus Christ. And if he tugs on your heart, if he has awakened something in you that just longs for all that the gospel offers, then he has not forsaken and deserted you. He is saying to you, you would not, but I will. So come. To me, says Jesus, weary and heavy laden, all your own struggles and efforts heading in the wrong direction, come to me and you will find rest. So Jesus is either a stumbling stone or you've discovered that whoever believes in him will never in time or eternity, be put to shame. That's the gospel. That's our God who is gracious. And that's our word from the Lord. Heavenly Father, we bow in humility and awe at this gospel, its marvelous grace to us. We we want to say, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, that you have found a way to bring to yourself those who would not come by opening our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.